Welcome to another episode of the Svarim Chatter Podcast, and I'm Nachi Weinstein. This episode is sponsored by Mosaica Press. Check out their many new titles at your local Judaica store or mosaicapress.com, including the newly published English translation of Be'er Yosef Alatera from Rabbi Yosef Tzvi Salant, a treasure trove of unique insights on the parsha from the student of Rabbi Yitzchak Blucher and the teacher of Shlomo Zalman Orbach, now available for the first time in English. To sponsor an episode or support the podcast, please email me at svarimchatter at gmail.com or see the links and information in the show's notes below. Please subscribe, rate, and review the podcast on your favorite podcast listening platform, whether that be 24-6, which as an aside, right before Hanukkah, is a terrific service of Jewish songs, podcasts, music videos, and more. And they have their different devices. And so I just want to give them a little plug. They're really outstanding or Spotify, or Apple Podcasts. And if you do use Apple, if you would, please consider, especially there, writing a short review, as well as rating it. It does help the podcast, and I do appreciate those who have done so. If you would like to join the Svarim Chatter WhatsApp community, where new shows or new episodes are posted and other things, I'll include a link to that in the show's notes. There is one admin-only chat where I post, similar to what I do on Twitter, new Svarim book information and other things. And then there are two similar chats, connected one where you can discuss new Svarim books and another and just anything about Svarim books and another one to discuss podcast related topics. Additionally, I am planning on starting a Substack, so I will link to that as well. And more information on that will be forthcoming. But if you would like to join that, the Svarim Chatter Substack, there'll be a link in the show's notes below. And I hope you enjoy this episode about the Monera. Hi everyone. Welcome to another edition of the Svarim Chatter Podcast. On this episode of the podcast, I'm going to be joined by Professor Stephen Fine, who is the Dean Pinchas Hergen Professor of Jewish History at Yeshiva University, and we'll be discussing the history of the menorah, which is something that he wrote a book on, published through Harvard University Press, the menorah from the Bible to modern Israel. And I should specify, we really mean the biblical menorah, the one in the base of English, not the menorah, Hanukkah, the one that we'll be lighting on Hanukkah, although we'll get into that. I'm sure that will come up and we will discuss it as well. But that's not what the book is focused on. So thank you, Professor Fine, for joining me. I'm so happy to be here with you. Thank you for inviting me. So let's start off. Tell the listeners a little bit about yourself and your background. I come from San Diego, California. My studies included the University of California and the USC and lots and lots of yeshivot. And on top of that, my PhD um, from the Hebrew University with even more yeshivot in Eretz Yisrael um, came together um, into an education that on the one side, because I'm so visual, was interested in things that you could see. And on the other, because I'm so textual, things that you could um, read. And so what I do for a living is the archaeology and the history of the world of Chazal. Now, what that means is that I have a particular love for um, the Kalim of the, of the Beit HaMikdash, in particular um, the menorah, which uh, I have a particular obsession with. In fact, my students call me the menorah man. Um, my son tried to get me menorah man at Gmail, but it didn't work. Someone else had it. Um, and I've been doing uh, menorahs um, since high school. In fact, uh, if you look at the covers of all my different books, you'll see almost all of them have on them menorahs, and now it's become a point of pride to put a different menorah for every book. So where did that fascination with the menorah come from, specifically? Oh, those things are never specific, but I can tell you that um, on dark winter nights, there are these candles that get lit somewhere at the end of Kislev, and um, I remember looking at the 
that shiny old earth that we have, which uh, we Ashkenazim call a menorah, and the Sephardim called a Chanukiah, and so in modern Hebrew it's a Chanukiah. And just staring at the lights as they increase day by day, and then looking at uh, the text in the Torah, which everyone listens to it, right? We listen to the Torah reading, we hear the description of the menorah, we listen to the description of the menorah twice, we listen to the menorah and the Haftarah from Zechariah, and my imagination runs wild when I sit and listen to um, Truma and all those other partial yot that deal with these subjects, because it says, and look and see, it should be made like this, and it should be made like this, and it should have this many flowers, and this many bowls, and this many stalks, and this many kanim, and this many uh, prachim. And it's absolutely confusing, by the way, which is what the Ramban says, uh, until you get to the end, and it says, don't worry. Look and make it the way you saw it on the mountain. And then it makes perfect sense, um, because without that last line, all those details don't make sense for a normal person, for a regular person. And so there's something about that puzzle that is always intrigued. And besides that, there's fire attached and Hanukkah. And it's cool. Who cannot love a menorah? It's like a pyromaniac comment. but uh... Well, only for Hanukkah time. Um, in fact, I have a collection of Hanukkah menorahs, um, antiques, uh, reproductions, um, oil lamps. And I can tell you that my house, I'm glad the fire department doesn't come on the eighth night of Hanukkah to visit us. I don't want to know how many are lit of those antiques. All of them. And how many is that? Dozen. Wow, all different types, I, I presume. Oh, oh. I have a reproduction of an ancient menorah from a Spade Knesset from the 5th century. I have oil lamps that I bought reproductions of, and I light them every night. Because, I, you know, lighting an oil lamp, if you've ever read, if you're Ashkenazi, then you're used to reading but Medmadli Keen every Friday night, every hair of Shabbos, and you um, hear, and you use this kind of oil and this kind of oil, and you can't use that kind of oil, and you can use this kind of wick, and you can't use that kind of wick, and olive oil is really good. It, it's so confusing until you actually go to the store and buy all those oils and get some of all of those wicks and a little bit of seaweed and try to burn these things, and you understand why the Mina Mubhar is the olive oil, because it's the one that's beautiful and doesn't smell. But if you try that, be sure to soak your oil lamp in water and to, and put as much water under the oil as you have of oil. Otherwise, it might explode. So if you try to do it, which is really cool to see by Mehmet Lekin and what it does, for safety's sake, please have the oil floating on top of water. But it makes sense uh, why we spend so much effort with it. It's hard to light oil. It takes effort to use those little wicks. It's not like those candles that, you know, it's simple. Or those little glass bottles that you can buy in Lakewood, right? That uh, that you just sort of stick them on top and the poof, it's done. But if you're going to do it the, the old-fashioned way, right? Um, it takes a little bit of skill and a little practice. So I see you do have, you know, obsession with everything with the Menorah, even the fire, not just the actual, you know, history and the archaeology of the Menorah itself. Or, well, How again, you- even though... How do you study something and not actually learn how to use it? If you were studying the history of the bicycle, wouldn't you want to ride an early bicycle just to see what it's like? Definitely. But I'm saying it's still, you you, you still see, you have historians or people interested in something and they don't, they just 
study in the abstract and you're you're actually studying it literally. Now, we, you know, as you mentioned, so I kind of just conflated the two. I said, you know, you study the mineral archaeological and then you light a mineral. It's not the same thing. And we should explain, you know, the difference. I'm sure many listeners know is that the biblical mineral that we're going to be discussing, that your book discusses, has seven seven parts as the Hanukkiah, as you call it, or as we call it, the Menorah has eight uh, without the Shamash, which would be nine. But anyways, there's well, the difference. But you know why the Hanukkiah is called a Menorah in Ashkenaz? Because it's a kind of uh, intentional drasha to connect the Menorah of the Beit HaMikdash and the Menorah of the house. It's it's almost creating a Gezer Shava between the two uh, to make what goes on in your house make your house, which is your private Beit HaMikdash, right? Your Shulchan, which is the Mizbeach of the temple, uh, and the menorah that's on it glow with the light of, of the Beit HaMikdash. And so it's an intentional drasha. Do we know where that starts? Because Chazal, you have Ner Hanukkah, Ner Hanukkah, you know, they don't call it menorah in Chazal. It starts much later. No, and in fact, you have to have an object that um, has eight plus one, or at least eight, uh, connected lights. You don't get those until you get to uh, the Middle Ages to a book called the Masechet Sofrim. And that's the first place we hear about it. And why do we hear about it? Because they're making it out of wood and clay. Excuse me, sorry. They're putting it out of clay and, uh, and um, no, clay and stone, and they're porous and get yucky. Right? And so there's a discussion about how you deal with these porous materials absorbing the oil. Um, that's why uh, Ashkenazi relatively quickly and Sephardim relatively quickly went over to metal. But if you went to North Africa to some of the communities in the hill country or to Yemen, they were using stone until yesterday, until they came to Israel. Okay, so now we're going to talk about the menorah, the one, the base of Megdash one. And so the most famous depiction one would assume, is the Arch of Titus, or Titus, as you write in the book. By the way, I told you this when we discussed, when we spoke off-air. You wrote Titus in parentheses, T-E-T-U-S. You were like, as it's pronounced. You know, everyone pronounces that even though it's Titus. So It's only all, Titus because it's English, you know? It's Titus if it's Greek, just like in Hebrew. Yeah, so again, you know, just Titus, Titus, however you want to pronounce him, um, his art still in Rome today. It has the depiction of the Menorah on there. Yeah. True. It was built in uh, 81, about 10 years after the uh, Great Parade where the Kaling were brought to uh, Rome and placed in a um, kind of museum that Espatianos, otherwise known as Vespasian, his father built uh, not too far from the Arch of Titus. So if you went to Rome in the year, oh, 80, you could have gone into this museum called the Temple of Peace and uh, seen the menorah and the shochan right there. Uh, and we know that there were Chachamim who did, which is a pretty cool thing. Rabbi Shimon Boyochai, who is, of course, the famous Rabbi Shimon Boyochai Rashbi, the student of Rabbi Akiva, according to a midrash that most people don't read called, uh, called Sifrei Zuta. It says, Kishech bati when I went to Rome, there I saw the menorah. And I can tell you where he saw it. In other words, anybody could have gone to see it. It was at the Temple of Peace um, in kind of Chevy, in, in captivity, um, on display. If you're 
if you were like a from Jew and you walked into that place, it must have been awful to think of the Kaling sitting there right on display. And we're going to discuss later the myth of the Vatican and there being the Vatican. Well, I'll leave that. We're not going to discuss that yet. So let's, oh, let's I didn't hold even that. Get near that. No, no, no. We're going to, we're going, I'm just telling the listeners already listening to this. We're going to get there, but we're not there yet. You'll have to stay till the end or fast you forward. You can't go to the Temple of Peace to see the menorah because it was burnt down like in the third century. So that's the end of that building. Now, that menorah on Titus or Titus's arch is rounded, yeah. famously round and you can I'll link in the show's notes for a picture for listeners that aren't familiar if they want to see it. I'm sure many are familiar, but if you can kind of describe how it, if you can describe it, even though we're doing this visually and that's kind of, we're doing this not visually, I'm sorry, we're doing this audio only, not visual, but if you can kind of describe for the listeners what it looks like before we get into the whole Rambam Chabad, you know, discussion. Uh, isn't it amazing that for 2000 years, Jews have been making images of the menorah. We find them from when the temple still stood, from Yerushalayim, from the Galilee. We have it on coins of one of the Hashmonaim, and all of them have round branches. And if you take the numbers that have uh, straight branches, you can explain every one of them, because they're usually put into a squeezed, squeezed kind of place or carved into really hard stone that the guy couldn't carve very easily. So you can explain every one of them. And until you get to a certain manuscript by a certain well-known rabbi who had a certain wonderful experience in Egypt um, and his students, you don't find straight branch menorahs. And then you find another 15 of them in Yemen, and that's it too. Because for all of Jewish history, um, Jews have been making round branch menorahs. And so that's what you see on the Arch of Titus, round branches, which late Midrashim, as well as the, the Jewish historian uh, Josephus and the philosopher Philo, all describe the branches as representing the paths of the celestial uh, beings, meaning the planets and the sun and the moon, um, which visually there are seven planets plus the sun and the moon, five plus two. and the way that the branches are explained by both Philo and by Josephus is as the paths of the um, celestial um, bodies. We have, a late, we have late Midrashim from Eretz Israel that, that say the same thing. So it's not like it's only in those Greek sources. It's something Jews were thinking about. Um, so the Arch of Titus has seven branches. The seven branches are rounded. They have a series of knobs on each branch. They are set out sort of in a semicircle on a tall stalk and then a base that looks like a wedding cake. The wedding cake has um, was originally um, a set of, um, I think, octagons. And each face of the octagon had an animal carved into it. Okay? Some of those animals are animals that you know. Others are animals that we consider mythological, like dragons, right? Or a, a lion with a fish tail, that kind of stuff, which we think is mythological, but they didn't think was mythological. They thought they were out there somewhere. Okay? Sort of like if you told someone there was a platypus before they were discovered in Australia, you'd say that's a mythological creature. 
right? So they thought the same thing. They thought these things were out there in the ocean somewhere. So um, that's the menorah that exists there. The base, um, of course, doesn't fit uh, what the Rambam says a menorah base should look like with three legs, which is what the Gemara Menachot suggests as well. But the Torah itself doesn't describe the brand, the base of the menorah. So, you know, it's sort of open season at a certain point, how you're going to read it. Was it like a um, cone reaching downward, like sort of the shape of a um, horn with a wide brace and a, and a narrow stalk? Was it something with legs? I can tell you that in the Roman world, um, most lampstands had three legs. Uh, Rashi describes the base of the menorah as being a teva, a box with three legs, which, uh, while such objects did not exist in the world of Rashi, they did exist in the Roman world, a box with three legs. So Rashi has an authentic Masora from Eretz Israel that we have nowhere else, and it shows up in no, no other Midrash. What I'm getting at is that the descriptions of the menorah once they're turned into objects, can get pretty complex. Somebody back there made a base that doesn't fit what we would expect, but you have to assume that the menorah that's on the Arch of Titus is one of the many um, menorahs that were available to be used in the Beit HaMikdash. Uh, the Mishnah says 10. Um, and you know how it happened. They would just get together, say, in Alexandria, and say, we want to give a menorah from the temple. And they'd say, oh, good, here are the specifications. This is what you do to make a menorah. So they'd ship their menorah in, but I'm not sure they told them every little tiny bit what exactly had to be there. And so there was some room for creativity. And so when the Romans found this menorah, this is apparently the one they liked, and they took it with them back to Rome, and this is the one that's illustrated. So we have this lampstand with seven branches that you'd expect, and with a stalk that you'd expect, and a base, which is a standard Roman base, um, which means it's sort of like, if anybody's been to, I don't know, the that, that exhibit that they have at the, at the Temple Institute in Jerusalem, it, the, the, they make kaling that they think are kosher, but they look like they're made out of the kind of stuff you could buy at Home Depot because they use the materials and the way things are created today. Similarly, the kalim that were built for the temple of Herod, the second temple, were made by Jews in the Roman world, so isn't it a surprise they look like the kalim that existed in the Roman world? Because, after all, the Torah doesn't specify everything. It says, or eva aseh, look and see, and if you can't see, you have to guess. And that's what exists on the archetypes. And everywhere else. So, a couple of things. You know, you mentioned animals. You have mythological creatures, dragons, the sphinx, and all sorts of other things you have there. Um, now, but the Archetitis Menorah, as you mentioned, um, that one we can kind of we'll get to the symbol of the state of Israel. But I will already mention. You know, you mentioned has a lot of the menorahs have the three kind of uh, legs. The, there's a proposed emblem for the state of Israel that you do discuss that did have those three, even though now the current one doesn't. So that's something that we can uh, discuss. But just want to ask you a question. Why on the cover of your book did you not put the Arch of Titus Menorah? You put something else. Because Harvard insisted. Hmm. That's the only reason. They had published a book with the Arch of Titus Menorah some time before. And so they told me I couldn't put it. And they put this one, and I objected, and I lost because they have final discretion. 
as long as you asked. But the cover is very pretty. And since they wanted to sell it for bar mitzvahs and Hanukkah presents, they thought they were doing really well. The cover's nice, but, you know, because it's of... It's irrelevant to the story. Yes, I know. No, it's totally... It's not what it should have been. It should have been something else. But okay, you're saying it wasn't you. Now, getting back uh, to... You know what? Let me tell you a secret. Next time I do a book cat, a book contract, it's going to say up front that I have final vote over what's on the cover. You learned your lesson. But as it pertains to the round versus straight branches... Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, you know, as you mentioned, the Rambam, and obviously he's Lubavitch today, and this is a big Lubavitcher uh, opinion. But so what you're saying is that we see round ones even besides for the Arch of Titus. But was that, do we know definitively that the depictions that you're referring to or brought down, written down in sources came before? Meaning, yes, because yes, 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 I'm yes. saying, did the Arch, did the Arch's depiction have an impact and an influence on later depictions of the Menorah, or you're saying no? Not until the 19th century. But Jews I'm, didn't copy the Arch of Titus Menor. No, that, that I understand, but what I'm asking is the fact that you're saying, oh, there's so many other sources that have it as round, but maybe that's only because they saw it at the Arch of Titus, or was there another uh, other The other way around. First of all, we have coins from the last sort of the Chashmonaim, a fellow named Mitityahu, otherwise known as Antigonus. And his coin has the Shulchan on one side and the menorah on the other side. And he's in 39 BCE, more than a century before the Arch of Titus. We have an image from a place called Migdal in the Galilee, Magdala, if you want, uh, which is north of Tiveria. And it has the menorah with its round branches. We've got a, a half a dozen of them from Eretz Israel, all before the Arch of Titus. This is standard procedure, in other words, to have round. I know what the what the Sichot say. I'm, I'm, I'm sort of a bucky in the Sichot of the Lubavitcher Rebbe in dealing with this subject, okay? It is not the case. I'm sorry from a historical basis. And if you take a look at the article that's written by uh, that lovely rabbi at Chabad in Oxford in England, uh, you'll see he's very sophisticated, and he deals with much of the same things I'm saying now, if anybody's interested to hear it through a Lubavitch voice. Um, you, the uh, Standard Jewish menorah had seven rounded branches. Okay? Until you come to a drawing in the Rambam's copy of his um, Mishnah commentary, and also in parallel text of, uh, of the Mishnah Torah, which were copied by others from his manuscripts, where it's drawn with straight branches. But you have to read what he says there. And since, you know, it was written in Arabic, but Rav Kapach, the great Yemenite rabbi, translated it all into Hebrew. So it's accessible to everybody in a, in a uh, Mosad Harav Kuk edition. And what um, Rav Kapach says there is, number one, I have a, a pile, I have about six manuscripts, he says, all that have straight branches. Now I've got I've got almost twenty. So there were a lot more than Rav Kapach had when he wrote that commentary in the nineteen sixties. Um, the manuscript of the Rambam in in Arabic, which is translated, says, "I am going to draw the menorah. I am going to make the uh, the bulbs." Right, the the kaftorim. I'm going to make the prachim, the flowers. I'm going to make all of the elements, uh, and I'm stylizing them 
So this looks like triangles. This looks like circles. I'm going to stylize it because I don't draw very well. Okay? And the truth is, if you look at the drawing, the famous drawing, which you can see anywhere, um, he didn't draw very well because if he did, the, the, the branches that he drew would not have covered up the text of the actual commentary because he made the branches too short and didn't leave enough space for them on the page, even though if he'd gone down half an inch on the page, he would have had enough space. In other words, when the Rambam says he's not a good artist, you should believe him. Okay? And so the Rambam has this drawing, which isn't very good. He tells you there, I'm not a very good artist. Um, and it has straight branches. Now, if all, if that was the end of the story, my answer would be, okay, so he made straight branches. So what? He tells you he's not a good artist. But the story goes on, and his son Avraham, Avraham ben Arambam, who, by the way, was 18 years old when his father died, says that my father made straight branches, and he meant it. And all those other menorahs that exist out there with round branches, they're wrong. Okay? So in order to assert that Rambam meant to have straight branches, you have to accept that Avraham ben Arambam understood his father correctly sometime before his father died, when he was 18 years old, okay? All of which is possible. Now, that was taken as fate value, face value, and copies of the Rambam's Mishnah and Mishnah, Torah, Mishnah commentary and his Mishnah Torah were made with straight branches. Some of them cleaned up the mess. In other words, they lowered the images, they straightened out the branches, they made better knobs and, and flowers. The artists were who copied them were often pretty good artists. Some of them, some of the Yemenites even added colors to make it so that it would be clearer what's going on and actually much more beautiful. Um, but the only manuscripts that exist with straight branches um, tend to be Rambam manuscripts. There are a couple of other manuscripts that have straight branches from Ashkenaz. There are also some with square branches from Ashkenaz. Um, but then there's the question that you're going to ask me, what about um, Rashi describing the branches of the menorah as al-kason, which is an Arabic word, which means something like diagonal, which is how the Rebbe took it as diagonal. Okay? Problem is, when you look in Rashi's old manuscripts written, written copied from his own hand, in other words, a generation or two after Rashi, they copied Rashi's manuscript, they always have round branches. Always. That means that if we go back into Chazal and ask, what do they mean when they say al-kason? What they mean is sort of diagonally. And you can see that in some of the description of uh, agricultural law in, in, in Zerayim. That uh, it means that there's a line up above, there's a dot up above, there's a dot on the branch, and then you have to connect them. Whether that's in a curve or whether that's straight is not determined, though the word in medieval and modern Hebrew means a straight diagonal line. Okay? And so, again, we have the problem of the... Um, denotation of the Hebrew words. Uh, the fact that Rashi's manuscripts have round branches, except in very few cases where there are Sofrim who read it and said, I think this is straight. Okay? But it's my point is it's not Devar Muvan Melav. Now, the um, Rav Kappa said a lot of this. He didn't do the Rashi stuff. Uh, and then he says, by the way, I have a version that says that the 
branches were 3D going all the way around. And, you know, we really don't know the shape of the branches, and it's going to have to wait for a Navi, just like it's going to require a prophet to tell us where the Shulchan, or the, excuse me, where the Mizbeach is exactly, where the altar is exactly. We're going to need the same, the same prophet to come in and say, this is the actual shape of the menorah, and until there, we can't be sure. Now, um, if you're a Chabadnik, the Rebbe is the ultimate authority. In other words, he is that Navi. And so there's a level of authority in his interpretation, and I understand that, that a non-member of the Chabad community who just reads the sources could read it the way I do. But if you start with Melachat Chila, with the notion that the Rebbe's menorah is what was, and then read back through the sources, you'll come up with that answer. Okay? that help? Yes, and this was something, you know, just because I know the Rambam and the Rambam Rambam and the Chabad opinion to bring up. I'm not Chabad. I don't have a straight menorah, but I wanted to bring uh, that up. It's something that we... Well, I have a straight menorah. It's part of my collection. Well, you have every type of menorah. You, I, why, yeah, I would be surprised yeah. if you didn't. I know, right? I love the Chabad menorah. I love the commentary. I grew up with Lubavitch. Uh, anybody who's listening, here's my ultimate reverence for the Lubavitch Rebbe. Um, and I guess if I says that, sat down with him and told him everything I know, and when I wrote it in the book, you could feel the reverence, um, he would look at me and say, Inachinami, but I want it straight. He would, yeah. he, he would see what I see. He would understand where I was coming from, I'm sure. And he said, and then he'd look at me and say, yes, but, you know, I believe the Ram Mamanur should be straight. And, and if you're Chabad, that's sufficient. All right. For everyone else. It can be round. Everyone else has a different way. Look, the, the, that's the uh, the many flavors of Torah, right? We come with different rules. Each community has different ways of, of asserting what's ultimately significant. Yeah, so let's move on more to the Arch. And yeah. you were involved with something called the Arch of Titus Project, and you can tell the listeners about that. And something really cool that you did, you were able to use digital imaging, and you were able to tell that there is some yellow on the menorah. Because when we see the Arch of Titus, we don't have the color. Now, when you see the Arch of Titus, it, looks like, it, it used to look like a gray, sooty, awful mess. Then they cleaned it off, and so now it looks like a gray piece of stone. But most of it broken, and you really have to use your... Uh, very human imagination to, you know, if you see a broken arm to reconstruct in your head what the arm looks like. So there's actually very little there. So I, I was fortunate. I was part of a project and we were thinking about color in, in, in ancient Roman materials. And I was thinking about color anyway, because I have Midrashim that talk about the uh, menorah having various colors. And so I was playing with it, and I have medieval manuscripts that have many different colors on their menorahs. It's an amazing thing. So I, I got into this, and uh, I joined this team, and we were thinking about color. Uh, and they scanned a statue that happens to be at the Virginia Museum of Art of a Roman emperor named Caligula, who, by the way, has its own his own day coming up in um, in January when uh, you're not supposed to fast because he died, which is a good thing, because he wanted to put his own statue in the Beit HaMikdash, right? It's in, it's in Megillah Tanit. So Caligula, who wanted to put his statue in the Beit HaMikdash, died. They have one of the few statues of him that exist there. And they decided they were going to scan it to see if there was any remnant of paint, because ancient Roman and Greek art wasn't black and white. It was, it was beautifully colored. 
And so that's a relatively new kind of knowledge that developed in the 2010s, um, looking for the color and reconstructing it on artifacts. So we were looking at Caligula, and we were, uh, and he was scanned. And I was sitting in Virginia with this group of Italian and American scholars, and I said, you know, they scanned the, the statue here in the lab. Do you think it's possible to st- scan the Arch of Titus menorah to see if there's any gold left on it? And they all looked at me, much to my surprise, and said, yeah, we could do that. So um, a few months later, this team of Italians and Americans, all, all paid for by my YU Center for Israel Studies, was off to the Arch of Titus with this big blue and white YU flag uh, hanging from the Arch of Titus, which did my heart good. And we did two things. We did a f- complete scan of the entire menorah panel, which then we were able to print out, which was pretty cool, and do as an exhibition at YU Museum in 2018, and is now on display on campus in Washington Heights. Uh, and we scanned the menorah itself for signs of color, and darned if this German team that did the scanning didn't find deep in the the recesses and the little cracks, little bits of yellow paint. So I always say for a little bit of yellow schmutz, I found my way into every newspaper in the Western world. It was really amazing. And so everyone was surprised that there was remnants of the yellow. And so then we knew exactly what color the menorah was painted yellow on the Arch of Tide. It was kind of a mustard color um, and a little bright mustard. Like French is, right? And um, then we decided we were going to reconstruct the broken parts of the menorah and then color it. Once we were finished doing the menorah, we said, hell, if we can do the menorah, we can do the clothes of the guy next to the menorah. And all those guys without heads, well, we could clone heads and put all heads on them. And we could reconstruct the entire panel so you could see what Romans saw almost 2,000 years ago uh, for the first time. So, yeah, our YU team found the yellow, which which is pretty cool, and it led to this major project that, that we just finished, actually, um, with uh, a book that came out um, in 2021. What's that book called? It's called The Arch of Titus, From Jerusalem to Rome and Back. It's published by uh, Brill in 2021. Oh, not affordable. No, it is actually, because thank God it's also published by YU Press, and we were able to put some money into it and make it more affordable. Though, truthfully, our um, book on the Samaritans, which is the next one in the series, is far more affordable. But they're okay. both big and beautiful. Well, I can link to it in the show's notes, besides for the book that we're, dis- we're discussing. So another thing about the menorah, and this comes from the arch a little bit, and you can talk more about this, is that the menorah has become a symbol. First of all, how unique is it that we at all have a depiction, actual drawing from that long ago of the menorah? I mean, there's many things in the world, you know, the the Christians are always chasing the Holy Grail, and there's other things that, you know, whether that's a myth anyways, but other, there's things that we don't have drawings of or depictions of, and this, we actually have it. Um, When it comes to ancient history, you always have to assume that we know nothing until we know something. This is actually some of those somethings that we know a lot about, the shape of the menorah in, in the Roman world. We have, um, from the, after the Korban, we have 
hundreds of them from synagogues and cemeteries all over the Roman world on jewelry, on bottles, lots and lots of menorahs. So this is one of those things that we have the uh, Shefa in great uh, quantities that we can learn from and, and I hope enjoy too. So what about them? So that clearly is saying that the menorah always has been, it still is, this symbol. It really is a big Jewish symbol. I mean, how... Yeah, yeah, we've been using this thing now. We've been using this thing now forever. I'll tell you where it comes from. First of all, um, coming from the Chumash is a pretty good pedigree, right? Coming from the Beit Hamikdash is also a pretty good pedigree. Yeah, but why the menorah over anything else? Why not the Shulchan? Why don't you have a Shulchan in the symbol of the state of Israel, right? You find a Shulchan on a Bar Kokhba coin, for example, right? Now there's a Shulchan between the doors of the Beit HaMikdash on one of the coins of Bar Kokhba, and you can link one of those if you want to. And the problem is, if you look at that Shulchan on the um, coin of Bar Kokhba, somebody out there is going to say, looks to me like the Ark of the Covenant, looks to me like a box. it's, It's so indistinct. Because, you know, how distinct can a table look? If you look at the table on the Archetitis, it looks like, you know what it looks like? It looks like a table, right? You know, it's a four-legged table. And in fact, when Josephus describes it, he describes it as a particular kind of Roman table called a Delphic table from Delphi in uh, Greece. Now, um, the Shohan was probably the first symbol that was used uh, simultaneously with the menorah, but sometimes without the menorah, uh, and it failed. It didn't pick up. People very seldom throughout Jewish history have made pictures of the uh, shulchan because it's boring. Because you don't always know what it is. Let me let me ask you a question. There's a um, restaurant that is on almost every corner of an American city. It is these two big golden arches, right? You may have seen it, right? Now, why are those two big golden arches? When I was a kid, those golden arches were as big as the building, and now they're just those two little things that they draw on there, and everybody knows what it is. Why are McDonald's golden arches so successful? Because they are completely unique, and no matter what, where you are in the world, right? The happiest thing for my kids was driving towards Mevaseret Zion and seeing McDonald's kosher, right? Um, because they got to go into the golden arches, too. Now, um, the let's try another one. Coca-Cola. Right? You know how they write out Coca-Cola in script? Everybody knows that's Coca-Cola, whether they speak Chinese and it has Chinese on the other side of the bottle, or whether it has Hebrew on the other side of the bottle. Everybody knows it's the real thing, Coke, and it's the same thing everywhere, right? It's an ultimately good branding symbol. If you take the McDonald's Golden Arches and break them and only have a little bit of a round, the round part of one of the arches, you will still know that that's a McDonald's Golden Arch. Right. If you take Coca-Cola and drop everything up off except for the co, right, you'll still know it's Coca-Cola. Take a menorah and you can and archaeologically this happens all the time. You find one branch with a Kaftor Ferach, uh half broken, eaten up by the by sitting in the ground for 2000 years and you still know it's a menorah. It is such a unique image. The concentric circles with the stick going down the center, right? That, and it's so easy to draw. Now, there's only one other branding symbol 
That's as, as good as that one. And it is a vertical with a horizontal near the top and belongs to another religion that, you know, its most famous member, uh, oh, well, was a Galilean from Nazareth, right? Um, that symbol, the, the cross, is so powerful and works so well because it's so simple and so identifiable, right? Um, the Havdil, the menorah, is ultimately visually distinct and identifiable. So on top of all of the connection to the Beit HaMikdash and all of the connection to the Chumash and all of the connection to Torah Or, right? And all of the connection to all the Midrashim that we can attach to it, which we could do with any of the kingdom in truth, right? This one can't be beat as a visual symbol. And that's why it won. By the way, as an aside, with McDonald's, I'm not sure what's more distinctive, the famous logo or the jingle. But both of them are so distinct that you hear it. Either you hear it or you see it and you know exactly what it is. Anyways, that's a side thing. This is a visual conversation. <laughs> yes, this is. So now, the menorah really is this simple. And like you said, it's always been. It's been on the symbols. It's been, you, you, we find it in mosaics on the floor of synagogues. They've been excavated. We find it all over. And we find it, Zionism picks it up and runs with it. And you find it today, it became the symbol of the state of Israel. And is the answer to what you just said, everything, all of the above, is that how it's been with a symbol for Judaism and Zionism? Do they take it for everywhere? Is that what happens? Oh, there's, it's, there's a couple of interesting things that, happen, things that happen. Number one, yes, all of those things are true. But the next piece is what's necessary for a symbol of a national group. You can have a national symbol that every member of the national group recognizes, but no one outside does, right? Like Arabic on a Saudi flag, right? That if you don't speak Arabic, it doesn't work. But on the other hand, it says Arabic to the rest of us. But if a Saudi reads it, he knows exactly what's on the flag, right? If an Arab reads a Saudi flag, he can read it. Um. The menorah is great because Christians know about it too, because it's of course in the Christian Bible, and it's and it's one of those things that Christians have been thinking about and 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 have even been making throughout their history. There's a church in northern Germany in a place called Essen, which has the most beautiful large menorah, full size, right? Um, you know, full size menorah uh, made around the year 1000 by this uh, leader of a nunnery named Matilda. And she created this amazing object. And that's only the most amazing of them. There are many, many, many other. Let me give you an example. I was invited to Germany to a place called Erfurt. And in Erfurt, they have an archaeological site. And in this archaeological site, they, which used to be a church, they found a great big menorah on the wall. And these are very nice people there. And they have a beautiful synagogue. And everybody should go there. And they just got UNESCO status for being a Jewish site. And it's worth the visit. Um, and they wanted to connect this menorah, which is on the wall of this former church in Essen, and say, isn't it nice that Jews and Christians got along? And I said, look, you got a lampstand because Christians read the Torah, too. So they put a menorah near their bima, like we in the, in the you know, 18th century put a menorah near our bima, um, or even in the ancient world put a menorah next to our bima to provide light to connect to the Beit HaMikdash. But that thing on the wall has nothing to do with Jews. You can just as well hate Jews and still light the lampstand, right? So it made people in, in Erfurt not as happy as they might have been after I left. 
Um, but it didn't stop them from getting the United Nations uh, status. Um, Christians used lampstands. When Christians looked at the menorah, they thought Jews. Sometimes they thought Jews more than Jews thought Jews. Christians connected the Artrotitis menorah to Jews very, very clearly in a way that a lot of Jews were ambivalent about the Artrotitis menorah for all sorts of reasons. Now, um, there's another piece, and that is there's this group developed in the 18th century called the Freemasons. And the Freemasons believe that they're the builders of Solomon's Temple. And one of their symbols is the menorah. And so if you go to a Masonic temple, like in Washington, D.C., they have a great big brass menorah. You can look at it online. Um, and a lot of Jews were Freemasons. From Jews, not from Jews, all kinds of Jews were Freemasons. Why? Because it was sort of a club that um, they allowed non-Christians to join into as equals. It's sort of like joining the Rotary Club. Right, and if you live in a small town, so that you know to, so that you have connections with your neighbors, right? So Freemasonry was into the menorah. So the menorah, fun in a funny way, for secularizing Jews, and again, some of them were from secularizing Jews, and others kind of modern Orthodox Jews, which is what most people are today, even if they don't call themselves that. The um, menorah for Freemasons was a known modern symbol. And so if you take the Christian menorah and the Freemason menorah and the Jewish menorah and put them all together and you're creating a nation state and you're going to be modern, and even if you aren't from and you're Jewish, you like the menorah because, after all, you're probably a Mason and you went to Hader. This is a great reason why Zionism would say, uh-huh, this is the perfect Jewish symbol. Now, were there debates what the symbol should be? Yes and no. Because the most important Zionist menorah isn't the one on the seal of the State of Israel, at least not until after 1949, when they, it was chosen. It was the menorah pin created by uh, Trumpeldor and Jabotinsky and worn by the soldiers of the Jewish Legion during World War I as they, uh, as they went into battle. They had the Arch of Titus menorah on their headpins, and underneath the word, underneath the menorah, the word in Hebrew, Kadima, forward or to the east, um, as, a, as a Zionist statement. And so that was the first time that a, a menorah served a kind of real political purpose. And so it went from there to be the, side, the symbol of the Beitar movement, right, because it was Jabotinsky and the revisionists. Uh, it was the symbol of all the Zionist movements. And when it came time to Jewish choose a symbol for the state, they may have had a contest, and they may have considered what were possible, and they even suggested other archaeological images that Robert Herzog, for example, liked much more than the one that was chosen. But reality, everybody liked the Arch of Titus Menorah. And so what did they do since um, many found objection to those animals on the base? The great thing about a modern symbol is that you can just sort of like take off the pixels, right? And uh, gone go the uh, animals on the base. So if you look at the symbol of the state of Israel, which was completed by two uh, brothers, the Shamir brothers, uh, and chosen in 1949, you'll see uh, the Archetitis menorah with um, the um, 
olive branches from the Chazon Zechariah, from the um, from the um, prophecy of Zechariah, one representing government, the other representing um, Torah in a way, right? Um, and at the very center, the Archetitis Menorah as the symbol of the state of Israel. So if you have an Israeli passport, the Archetitis Menorah is on it. If you have an Israeli coin, somewhere on it, there's a little tiny Archetitis Menorah. If you uh, drive down the street and go by a government building, it's going to have the Archetitis Menorah. You can't miss it. I once did uh, decide I was going to spend two hours and walk through Yerushalayim and see how many Archetitis Menorahs I could count. I was with a bunch of students. You know, you do that sort of stuff with camp kids. So I was with a bunch of students. We found dozens and dozens and dozens in the strangest places, uh, which shows how prevalent this menorah is in sort of shaping Jewish space in Eretz Israel. Now we get to the Holy Grail aspect of things and the Jewish Holy Grail, as you call it in the book, which I think is really well put. And you know, I've kind of teased this to listeners. I'm soon going to be doing a series here coming up after Hanukkah on the lost tribes. And not, and that is something that everyone's always oh. looking for. And that's something that it's always being looked for. But the menorah is something that's also being, you know. Um, so it's kind of the Jewish holy grail is, I think, well put. And let's start off there. Before we get to the Vatican part, there's... Uh, a couple of different stories associated with it. It's in the Tiber. It's here. It's there. Talk about that. It's in a cave. The Vespasian hit it in. It's an all sorts of, uh, I think, Benona Tudela says that. So go ahead and talk about that and how it becomes this kind of quest. This is what everyone's searching for. Now, maybe that has to do with the, symb- the symbolism as opposed to other things that they're not searching for. This is the one, Kaylee, that everyone's searching for. Um, let me start out by saying that if the menorah is at the Vatican, I'd be the happiest guy in the world. Though. So, Getting it back, I wouldn't be sure who I'd give it to. So it could be complex, right? Because uh, so where are we going to put it? The Curious Joel? Um, there's this guy in Muncie who thinks it's buried, that he was going to get it, he was going to buy it from the Vatican and bury it in his backyard in Muncie, right? In other words, there's the craziest stories out there about the menorah. Uh, here's the deal. We would really like the Kaling back. This is one of those things that goes back to the biblical times, right? We came back from Babel. We wanted the Kaling back. We had to make them. They weren't as perfect as the ones that came before. Um, Jews believe that the the Aron is, was under Harabite, you know, waiting for us. We the Kaling are a sign of, of 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 authenticity, of reality, of connectedness to everything holy. So the fact that Jews want them back. Is, is not a bad thing. It's a good thing. Okay? So let me say that as a proviso. People have come up with explanations for where the menorah is about as long as people have been thinking about these things. It was sort of easy in the first and second century because there, are at least some, there was at least one menorah in Rome, and it was at the Temple of Peace, and you could go visit it. Okay? By the time you get to Benjamin of Tadella in the, in the high Middle Ages, um, he says that um, the Kalim are in a cave under a church called St. John of the Lateran, which isn't the Vatican, uh, but it's in a cave and no one's seen it. Okay, so that's what he heard. And in fact, Christians had the same belief that they actually owned it. Um, 
they had it in a church cut they called the Holy of Holies, the Sanctum Sanctorum. It was the Church of the uh, Pope, which was not at the Vatican. It was at St. John of the Lateran. It's called the Sanctum Sanctorum to this day. And they went in, they had a box, and they said that box is the Ark of the Covenant. And inside the Ark of the Covenant, there's going to be the menorah. And they went in in the, in the high Middle Ages a little bit later, and they took up the box, and they opened it up, and they found nothing inside of it. And they put the box on display, and then they realized this is not the Ark of the Covenant. And so they sort of hid it. Okay? So there was this Christian myth that they had it that they dispelled with, but you can understand why they'd want to have it too, because the truth of reality was brought to Rome by Titus and given to the church according to this sort of mythology of Christian authority. And so Benjamin of Tadella thinks the menorah is under the Vatican, excuse me, under the church of St. John of the Lateran. Okay, great. But more important, a kind of Gemara on on Pirkei Avot, called the Avot of Rabbi Natan, describes a whole pile of uh, kelim, and it says that they are Adain Baroma. They are still in Rome. Okay? Here's the problem. Is that Masora from the time of the Tanaim, which means 2nd, 3rd century, or is it from the time that the book was actually put together, in the 8th century? When When is the Adain? Right? Is it a dying baroma uh, in the year seven hundred, or is it a dying baroma in the year two fifty three hundred? And that's an answer I can't give, but I can tell you that if you think historically, it means a particular moment. But if you do not think historically, if you think that if it says a dying, a dying is forever. If it says still, it means still is forever. Then whenever you read the book, it means it's still there. So if you read the book in the 19th century, it is still in Rome in the 19th century. And if you live in the 21st century, it is still in Rome during the 21st century. But if you read the text historically, it has to relate to the people who wrote the book, sort of by definition. Okay? and But it's that openness, that ahistorical way of thinking that could lead people to think, based upon about the Rabbi Natan, that it's a dying baroma, right? That it's there today. Now, that's very comforting to think it would be still in Rome. But I'm telling you, there was no direct transmission from Titus to the church. There was no church for 600 years, 700 years after Titus. There was no official church of Rome that could even receive such a thing. And they didn't have it. Okay? Even though they themselves had their own myth that the thing was under the St. John of the Lateran. Full stop. Okay? Jews in the 19th century, along with Christians, believed that the menorah was not at the Vatican at all, or at St. John of the Lateran at all. They believed that it had been dumped into the um, into the river. Okay? It had been dumped into the river and was sitting in the silt. And in fact, there were Christians who wanted to dredge the river in order to find, to dredge the Tiber in order to find the Kaling in the 18th century. Because if it's thrown into the river, it might still be there. There's lots of stuff that comes out of the river on a regular basis that was thrown there in the Roman times, and so why not this? So, there's even a rock that was sort of planted at uh, in the middle of Jewish quarter in the late 19th century that claimed to be a treasure map to tell you how to go and find the menorah that they were going to use to try to, con- that somebody planted there to try to convince Jews that they should go search for the menorah. And it's just as well that that stone wasn't found until the 1990s, so somebody might have done it. 
Okay? But that was a fake. Jews coming to Rome looking for the menorah were few and far between. In fact, there's no historical evidence of Jews actually coming to Rome to see the menorah until something funny happens in the 20th century. And that is that uh, Rav Herzog writes in his dissertation, which was on Techelet. By the way, I checked in Rome, and there's no, there's no, none of the garments of the high priest and none of the parochia can be found at the Vatican because I asked and they don't have it. So he took this seriously at the turn of the century. But there's a lot of legends floating around the Jewish world. So, for example, when the Rajina Rebbe went to Naples to find out how to make Techelet, um, he naturally passed through Rome. And in the second half of the 20th century, people said, and you know what he was doing when he went to Rome? He went looking for the menorah. Or when a rabbi from North Africa, who actually made friends with the Italian king, was invited for the wedding of the king's son, um, it says that he went to Rome and he visited the king. But when they retold the story in Israel in the 1970s, they said, oh yeah, and by the way, he stopped to see the menorah. It's sort of one of those things to check off. And so when things began to warm up with the Vatican at the, around the year 2000, um, chief rabbis come in and they ask the Pope, by the way, can you give back the menorah? The legend had developed ad kadekach that people believed that the menorah was at the Vatican. Now, a lot of that had to do with uh, stories that were developed and told uh, in Brooklyn in the 1950s. And you can actually trace the stories. I spent so much time on stories of the Kalim in, uh, and where they um, went and where people thought they were in Rome that finally I isolated it to a rabbi, Rabbi Blau, a Lubavitcher, who spent a lot of time at the Vatican Library or with the Vatican Library. He didn't actually go there looking at uh, manuscripts and then publishing them. Some people may know his red uh, obscure Rishonim books that he sold privately. He went to JTS Library, he went to the YU Library, he was a Yeke who became a Lubavitcher and was into manuscripts, and he met a man who told him that he went to the Vatican, and somehow he went from community to community telling the story that he met a man who went to the Vatican and saw the menorah. Um, I gave a talk in Brooklyn number of years ago at the Sephardi Center in, in um, Flatbush. And I and I talked about things that we're talking about. And I remember uh, there was a there was a hosted sitting in the back who worked with Rambam manuscripts. And I said to everyone, you know, there is no menorah at the Vatican. The Israel Antiquities Authority actually went and looked. There is no extra basement at the Vatican. Um, this is one of those Wishes, wishes that we wish could be fulfilled, but can't be. And he looked at this, this old chassid, looked at the assembled people, and he said, you know, I work at the Vatican all the time, and Professor Fine is right. There is no menorah at the Vatican. So anybody who knows them well knows that there isn't. But people who don't know them well and, are, and find them suspect and find every time Catholics do something nice, they must be uh, hiding something, right? This story pops up every single time anything new happens in the Jew in uh, Jewish life. Any major transition, any time any messianic idea comes out, 
somebody else says, by the way, newsflash, menorah at Vatican, newsflash, Italian says he'll give back the, 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 the Kaleem. Newsflash, Rabbi in Jerusalem claims that uh, he has proof that the menorah is at the Vatican. Actually, he's a rabbi in B'nai Brock. So what did I do with my YU students? We took the proofs that he gave. And the students thought I must be some sort of kofir. Because I said, okay, let's read the sources. Let's read every proof he has. And at the end, all these kids looked at me and said, these sources don't say what he says they say. I said, no, they don't, do they? In other words, as much as we would like this story to be true, and there are people sitting there out there saying, yes, but I heard X. For those people, let me try another story. I once lived in Cincinnati, Ohio, and I taught at the university there. And I would start Introduction to Judaism, which had Hule Alma. Anybody you can imagine in the world was sitting in that room, just because they were curious. And I would stand in front of the room the first day with my kippah on, and anybody who knows me knows that there's much more skin under my kippah than there is hair. And I'd look at my students, and I'd say, listen, there's something I had to deal with before we start. They'd say, what? I said, I can guarantee you that Jews do not have horns. And they say, huh? I said, yes, I can guarantee it. I said, take a look under. Look under my kippah. Does anybody see any horns? Unless I file them very low, I don't have horns. And I think I can speak for my African-American students in telling you that they don't have tails. And then they look at me like, yes, obviously, right? But there are students out there who I was teaching who believed both of those dehumanizing myths, okay? And there's nothing you're going to do to convince them otherwise. There are stories that are not true, even though everyone repeats them. Now, you and me having horns, that's a dangerous one, because it makes us less than human. But at the menorah at the, at the Vatican, it's not a dangerous one. Unless we decide we're going to go raid the Vatican, take a menorah that's not there, right? In other words, but as long as we are behaving in a friendly manner with the Catholics and they are being indulgent of us, which is what they are with this question of the menorah at the Vatican, you know, um, as I said when I started this diatribe, um, I, the first person who would be thrilled to walk into a basement at the Vatican and find a menorah. By the way, I would even go to Muncie and be thrilled to find the menorah. I have no problem with any of this, right? Um, I would go to Romans find the menorah. And in fact, I got as close as anybody can get. And, and, and that's the scientific truth. Okay, does that help? Yes. And for some reason, the menorah at the Vatican is one of these kind of pervasive myths. And it's something I think that everyone knows. Another one is the, the morales golem <laughs> that in Prague that's, you know, another myth. But these kind of myths, now there is a connection there. You know, Rosenberg, you know by the way. Up, you know who made up the, the Maharal's myth? Was this amazing? Udo Rosenberg. Rosenberg. Udo Rosenberg was the uh, most amazing rabbi in Montreal. He's the father, uh, the grandfather of some of the most important Rosh Yeshiva in, uh, in the country uh, and in Israel. Uh, Yusuf Rosenberg was an amazing, amazing person. Um, but he wrote novels, and he also wrote a novel called Koshen and Mishpat Shalakadosh Shalakohen Gadol, which he copied from a Arthur Conan Doyle story, 
And if you read the story and get all the way to the end, he tells you in his final paragraph that the whole thing's a spoof. Okay? And but and if you wonder, if you still want to think that the golem is in Krog, um, there is no attic at the Altnoishal. So he can't be up there. Uh, but he can be at Universal Studios where you can visit Herman Munster. But when I, was, when I was in Prague a few months ago, though, you do see the rungs going up on the outside of the shul. And everyone's like, we want to go up and look for the golem up there. And it's like this thing where everyone thinks that it's, it's one of those myths. So, but I think that the menorah in the Vatican like rivals the, the golem. It's even more, maybe, that people bigger. believe it. Are you kidding? It's so much bigger. Um, but, you know, they're also cool. And, and for me, look, look, I'm a historian. And I love stories. And I love how people tell stories and, and I see, understand who we are through our stories. Uh, I, I find all of them, whether it's the Golem or whether it's a Hoshan Mishpat or whether it's Menorah the Vatican, so delicious and so wonderful. And so what they tell us about ourselves, you, if, if you hear in my voice any drop of condescension, it's not real. I have none. I truly, uh, adore the process that we're describing. And and uh, I know the the men who uh, told the stories of having seen the menorah at the Vatican, a nice Jewish man from Queens. Um, if you read my book, I told the stories as he told them, and I worked actively, really actively, to treat him with utter respect, even though I I and because he was serious, he was a good kosher man. Um. I treated him with utter respect, even though he's wrong. He misinterpreted what he saw. And that's okay. We can, we're entitled to make mistakes. We're entitled to believe or to hope more than the evidence can sometimes allow for. And, and that's sort of the messianic belief, isn't it? To believe one step beyond reality. To believe that the world can be what we need it to be. And someday the menorah will come back. But not from the Vatican. Now, I'll. That's really the discussion of your book. There's more to discuss from the book, but I'll link to the book in the show's notes for those interested. I do want to ask you here, as it's Hanukkah now, Hanukkah time. So, what about Ma, let, what we all call a menorah today, which, as we said, is not. It's a Hanukkah or it's a menorah, but that's what we call it, but it's not the biblical menorah that we've been discussing for most of this podcast. But there's. We discussed the shapes before, but there are different shapes and styles of menorahs that people use did you research or look into that at all how that came to be or is that just no that's not just that's cool if you've ever been to the israel museum and seen the wall with all the hanukkah menorahs you'll see the ones from yemen and the ones from from amsterdam and the ones from america and from poland and lithuania and everywhere and they're all so different except they have something in common, and that is that they have eight lights in a row and one on the side somewhere. Now, think of the metaphor that I just suggested, right? All of us exactly the same as we are profoundly different through our our Hanukkiot, through our menorahs. Uh, There's a wonderful book published in 1939 by a fellow named uh, Mordechai Narkis, who is the founding director of what became the Israel Museum. It's called the Hanukkah lamp, or Menorata Hanukkah. 
It's the most important book, as far as I'm concerned, ever published on the history of Jewish art. And he started with those little oil lamps in a row and showed how different communities um, made their menorahs. Now, I, I, you won't be surprised. I read that book when I was in high school. There are very few copies of it. I ordered it through interlibrary loan. It found its way to my high school. My high school Hebrew teacher and I, that poor woman, we sat and read the whole book. It's the first book I ever read in the Hebrew language. Okay? Menorah to Chanukah. I absorbed that book. I became that book. And when I showed up in Israel, uh, when I was in university, and I walked into the Israel Museum, into the back room, and uh, because I was going to volunteer there, I knew every menorah in the place by name and where it came from and and how it developed. It's an amazing story, and it's an amazing metaphor for um, what holds us together in, in all of our diversity. Now, that book is sort of hard to get, but you can get it if you go to my academia.edu site, and and look under menorah, you'll find I, I scanned the whole book. And the best part is the copy I scanned in nineteen in two thousand and fifteen is the same copy that I'd read in nineteen seventy five because there are so few of them, and I ordered it through interlibrary loan again. So menorah to Hanukkah, the, the Hanukkah lamp. There's an English uh, summary by Mordechai Narkis. It's on academia.edu, on my page, under menorahs, and under Jewish art, I believe. And if anybody wants to read it, there's a whole lot to learn there. And it shows you how a Tashmish a, Kedusha a, a, um, isn't just a Tashmish Kedusha. It's a reflection of who we are at every given moment in our history. And then it gives us a window back into who we are. Who were we in Italy? Who were we in Poland? Who were we in Yemen? Who were we in in um, in um, North Africa? Well, we were Jews in North Africa. My Hanukkah menorah looks sort of like a mosque because that's a great building and that's the Beit Hamikdash. And in Poland, well, it looks sort of like a great big public building. Why? Because when I thought about the Beit Hamikdash there, that's what I thought about. And in Rome, you know what it looks like? It looks like a Roman building. You know why? Because that's what great buildings look like there. And from place to place, we took the culture, the visual culture of our world, our imaginations, and our sense of of self-dignity, and created beautiful menorahs so that we could say, it's, it's for me, it's like the most inspiring thing. And so that's that's the Hanukkah, as Sephardim call it, as Israelis call it, and that's the menorah, as we Ashkenazim call it, or that's Menorah Hanukkah, as Mordechai Narkis called it. How's that? It's good. What's an American menorah? It's a ner mitzvah disposable gold menorah with the uh, with the ready ready made oil cups. What would it be an American? I'm kidding. But what's an American design? It's the one you buy at the place with the golden arches, you know. Um, in other words, disposable. <laughs> exactly. Uh, look, an American one is some potter sitting in um, Lakewood or Los Angeles who says, I'm going to do Hidur Mitzvah and make a beautiful menorah. That's an American one. Right? There are American, there's somebody who made an American menorah once with statues of the Statue of Liberty and took out the lamps and put it the, uh, 
the, the candles, which is sort of cute. Um, contemporary artists make menorahs, you know? You can, whether it be the, the, the seemingly traditional ones that you can buy in your local Tashmishé Kadusha store and then spend your life polishing, or whether it's um, the straight ones that Lubavitch makes, which is a new thing. And most traditional Lubavitch families still use their old, old bench-style menorah the way the Lubavitch Rebbe did. Um, in public, they use the straight branches most of the time. Many families don't use the straight-branched one at home. Um, and on and on and on. But that's an American production, the straight-branched menorah. Um, What's another good American one? There was a guy named Ludwig Walpert who was an artist at, in New York who made the beautiful, beautiful Hanukkah menorahs um, with words like Lechadna El Shabbat as the artistic form that he built his menorah out of. And on and on and on and on and on. So um, for me, and I hope for, for the, the artists who are listening out there, it's the charge. Go make a menorah. But if you do, don't make it out of paper mache, please, because it will burn up. Right? You have to use the proper materials and something that doesn't get dirty either. Because if it gets dirty, it's a bizayon and, and you have to throw it out. So using materials that don't absorb. Um, that's why I always liked it when my kids would bring the menorahs from school every year. And I have a couple of those still, too. Uh, but I was going to say, a lot of those are wooden and you can't use them. They come on with these nice projects. You're like, I'm not lighting a wooden manure. I'm not putting a fire on top of wood. They never, your kids never came on with that. Yeah, they did. But you know what I did with them? You know, those little aluminum foil um, cups that they sell candles for, for Shabbos? Yes. I've been known to put those on top of the wooden manure mm. with a little bit of aluminum foil in between. Don't make me nervous, but okay. I be very nervous. I sat there the whole time. But I'm going to tell my kid I'm not going to light his manure. Yeah. So you have a lot of menorahs. Do you light any of them outside? I live in an apartment in New York City. So if I did, it would be a bad thing. But I'll tell you, I walk into class at YU with one of them every night. Different a different one. one. A different one. But that's, you know, if it's different kids a different night, then I'll wear the same one. Use the same one. But uh, the cool part was one year, we have the Archetitis menorah there. Uh, the Archetitis panel. On against a wall, and we had the light. We had the lights on it with the colors and the whole business, and uh, we had a public lighting ceremony right there. And the students found that really meaningful. Wow! So I'm sure we can go on and on talking about the menorah here, and this is something that clearly you love and love discussing. So I will, as I said, link to the book, your book, in the show's notes. I'll link to the one you mentioned, the book that you scanned. Uh, on academia. I'll put that in the show download notes as well. Yes, you can just download it and put it on your site. It's out of copyright. Okay, so I'll I'll put the link there. It's easy to put the link, but um, maybe yeah. I can download it and put it on the Swarm Chat or WhatsApp chat. For those that aren't on the chat, by the way, there's a link in the show notes. You can join. But I'll try maybe to do that. And I will, uh, again, link to various things that we discussed in the show. I'll put in the show's notes. And uh, with that, thank you very much, Professor Fine, for joining me. And Freilich and Lichtige Hanukkah to everybody. And as Josephus said, Chagorim Sameach, a good, happy festival of lights to all of us. Chag Sameach.